Hi, and welcome to Bread. This summer, we're beginning a new series that we're calling Jesus with People. And in it, we're drawing our attention to interactions that Jesus had with various groups in the book of Luke. In seeing how Jesus responds to people and how people respond to him, we see ourselves. And this helps us to be more fully aware of his presence, more fully alive, and better equipped to do his kingdom work here in our city. Take a listen. Conditioning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I say that with renewed um, fervor, having spent, what, do you think about 18 hours with no power yesterday? And overnight, and apparently it just went back on, we just heard. Uh, but it's a thing, flipping heck. How much of civilization has lived without air conditioning? I have no idea how. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to. Um, I wanted to um, tell you about my friend Sandy, who makes the donut holes that we enjoy every week. She runs California Donuts on the corner there where the 7-Eleven is. And... Um, I chat to her on the days that it's my job to uh, get the donut holes for us. Um, she is, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, The Donut King. We watched it last year in, in film club, which was something we did online um, to kind of stay together. But um, this whole incredible story of um, the Cambodian refugees who uh, came during this, between the mid seventies and mid nineties, and uh, particularly in California, although in some other places too, um, sort of d developed these networks of donut shops. In the 90s, apparently 90% of LA's donut shops were run by Cambodians. And um, she is a very good example of um, the way that they built these businesses and really captured the American dream and the American work ethic. And it is, it's kind of an incredible story of, of how that goes. I asked her last week, because um, I see her on Sundays, and I've popped in midweek a couple of times when she last had a day off. And she said, 2019. She took a week off, but she doesn't normally do that. She works seven days a week, 365 days a year, apart from the she occasionally takes a day off. Um, so we know, don't we, from the Genesis accounts of creation that there's, sort of, there's, a, there's, a, there's a call, there's a mandate to the day of rest. It comes on the seventh day, but actually, if you reframe it slightly, um, particularly acknowledging that in, creation, in, the, in that first creation story, evening comes before morning. There's very much the implication as the second creation story comes that we are called, mankind is called, the rest of the human story comes after this day of rest when God rested, that rest was to be our very foundation. And so I come to you this morning with a actually flipping amazingly relevant, because Raoul didn't know I was talking about this when he talked about Jesus being God of the Sabbath. But how are you doing with your Sabbath rhythms? Because I do think this is a very, very important pastoral question. A commitment to Sabbath, to take a day of rest, is rooted in the recognition that we are chosen and beloved. It is a commitment to being oriented around the reality that we are dependent, that we are not in control, but God is. And I come to you with the zeal of a newly reformed Sabbath taker. This was not something I'd actually ever really sorted out in my life before, particularly because we have weird rhythms because obviously the kids are off school at weekends, but we work Sundays, so how are we going to work this out? 
And I have worked this out in the last couple of years, I'm happy to tell you. I spend a lot of Friday getting ready so that between 6 p.m. on Friday and 6 p.m. on Saturday, we rest. It doesn't mean we lie about doing nothing. It means that we just don't do the things that we class as work. Um, and it has had a massive impact on my life. And it has had a, a massive impact on my understanding of various things, some of which I'm going to be talking about today. Um, but it is my pastoral duty to keep reminding you that you are called to rest. You are called to work from a place of rest. And how about this one? Which I might venture to say is um, acknowledging that I'm going to sound potentially tone deaf and officially privileged as I make this um, point. Failure to Sabbath is a protest against our dependence on God, therefore, because it suggests that deep down that we're the ones who are responsible for our own destiny, that we know better than he does. Failure to Sabbath is sinful. Um, I am speaking today about Jesus and sinners. And it is kind of imperative to what I'm going to say that we start to just think about how we can reframe our understanding of sin. Because I think some of us, uh, for good reasons, have maybe misunderstood what sin is. It is very simply and purely a rejection of the one that we are made for and the fact that he knows best. It is our naturally turned away state from the ways of his kingdom. So Jesus and sinners, they are the ones that he came for, right? We know this. He was constantly uh, overturning cultural norms by stopping to spend time with those that uh, the good people deemed were not okay. In Luke 5, he directly asks, he is directly asked, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And he answers, it is not for the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the, sorry, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's actually beautiful when you stop and notice what he does whenever he um, stops to talk to one of these sinners. Very often it's just the stopping and acknowledging and the seeing them and the understanding of their predicament that is what comes first before he says anything else. This is what happens with love. And there's a famous woman called the sinful woman um, in Luke 7. And we're not actually given many details about Jesus whatever prior interaction she's ever had with Jesus, but we do know that she goes to the house of the Pharisee where he's having dinner, which is just highly unconventional. She's not been invited, and she arrives with an alabaster jar of perfume, and at 7.38 says, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. It's such a visceral image, isn't it, of somebody who's been affected by something. And it's Zacchaeus that we're looking at today in Luke 19. I'm sure we all know this one from Sunday school. Um, the account of Jesus' um, encounter with uh, Zacchaeus is only told in Luke. And it starts, Jesus entered Jericho, Jericho and was passing through. But there's a quick important detail that we might not necessarily get, which is that Jericho knew Jesus was coming. Because remember, in the, um, earlier on in Luke, he's told his disciples to go ahead before him and tell the towns that he's coming. And we know, of course, that hospitality is very, 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 very important in this culture. 
it would be an absolute disgrace to not host someone well, not only an offence to the person that's coming, but also an offence on your whole town if you didn't host somebody well. And so it's very likely that this town has agreed, has planned, has selected someone of the great honour of, of hosting this travelling teacher. So Jesus is arriving in verse 2. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. And the word for mutter as a translation from the Greek isn't right here. It's, it's got a lot more volume than mutter would imply. It's, it's an expression of this insult that has just been laid on them. He has gone to be a guest of a sinner. Sinner is from the Greek hamartolos. One who has forfeited is what it means. One who has dropped out of the race because they have missed the mark. Jericho is a really great spot to be a taxman. Um, it is an important town on the road to Jerusalem, and it's got a great business scene, really fertile land. Um, so, and it's also that Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. So he's top dog of these Jewish traitors who made their wealth by employing others to, or he employed others to extort the fellow Jews um, on behalf of their unclean Roman occupiers. Zacchaeus is the worst of the worst. He's very likely got absolutely no friends other than his tax collecting posse. Interestingly, before this point in Luke, Luke has only made negative portrayals of wealthy people in this letter that, as we've looked at, he was writing to a Gentile nobleman. We can actually read this story of Zacchaeus um, as a direct commentary on the story of the rich young ruler, which comes just in the, in the few verses before it. Um, you know the one where, who goes to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And ultimately Jesus says, um, you've got to sell everything and come and follow me. And he goes away sad. Neither that account of the rich young Euler and what Jesus says to him or um, uh, this, uh, what he's saying to what happens with Zacchaeus here, who ends up giving 50% away, um, are just for the record to be given as any sort of instruction or new code on what we're supposed to do with our wealth. Um, Jesus talks about wealth a lot and or money a lot and as we know it's we talk about this but he, it's not he never says that money has a value of itself that it's, that it's evil but what it does do is show us it is an indicator of where our hearts truly are and where we believe we belong I'm going to go back to Genesis for just a minute um, it's very interesting if you look at it this way, that in Genesis 3, which is the fall scene, the very first casualty of the rebellion, of this reaching for more than the status humankind had already been given, is the inversion of the perfect love that they've been created for and to enjoy. Inversion of that on every level. Intimacy between the two turns... Um, to shame, so they've previously had this complete, complete intimacy, complete naked, sharing everything, and that turns to shame, and the need to hide. 
Um, love turns to fear. Um, they blame each other. And Adam then names his wife so he exercises power over her that he was never intended to, power, to um, exercise. Every aspect of the perfect love that they had known has become distorted. I've been mulling on this idea. It's quite simple, but also quite incredible um, that I heard someone make this point that every example of sin in our lives, every single outworking of it is actually a distortion of the love that we were created for. Every single way that we hurt ourselves and that we separate ourselves from God and we hurt each other are ways that this powerful life force of the universe that we were made for has been turned upside down. I came across a famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards this week. <clears throat> he, if you don't know him, is known as one of the fathers of the Great Awakening, which was a revival on the East, with the East Coast colonizers in the 1730s and 40s. And his sermon is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I gather it's still taught in high schools across America as um, sort of the gold standard of descriptive writing. Apparently, when he finished this sermon, people fell to the floor, overcome with their need for Jesus. Do you want to hear a little bit of it? The God that... No, I'm not going to do the 18th century Puritan. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Not brave enough. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. It's delightful, isn't it? It is important to note, I don't want to speak too ill of Jonathan Edwards because it's not that he was just purely conversing people on the basis of this abject fear. He was, his point was that God the Father was so angry with our fallen, sinful state, and it's Jesus who came and paid that price for God the Father so that we could be... So it wasn't entirely... It's not a completely fair representation of his theology. But this had people trembling on the floor because fear is a very effective motivator. Our brain's reaction to fear, after all, is one of the very things that has kept us alive as a species in evolutionary terms. It's very important but it's not quite right when it comes to God. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you, lest you be consumed. You know, as well as I do, if you want to find that God on the pages of the Old Testament, he is there. Throughout the brutality of life in the late Bronze Age, when all this came together, these stories, as they were passed down, Israel made certain assumptions about the nature of God, about how he would treat their enemies, about how he'd pour his vengeance on them. Old Testament prophets frequently foretold that the coming of the Messiah, uh, with the coming, coming of the Messiah, God would bring vengeance on Israel's enemies. For example, um, Isaiah 61, 
this famous passage that we have looked at a few times in our series on Luke because it's what Jesus quotes from when he reads um, in the synagogue for the first time in Luke 4. We've looked at it a couple of times. But Isaiah's original prophecy is, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release the darkness from the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. You ever noticed this before? Because God sent his only son to show us something else. To lead us to abandon those misunderstandings about who he is and what he is like and what our time on earth is for. When Jesus quotes this passage, you ever seen this? He stops after um, the, have we got these passages up there? I just want you to see it because it's really good. Um, he stops. Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord is to proclaim the year of the God of, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. It's gone. The vengeance bit. This was the message he was bringing to Israel. You've had it wrong about the vengeance part. You've had it wrong about the outsiders and the sinners. I am here for anyone willing to face that we are all marred by the ways in which the love has been inverted. That's all he wants. Here I am, Lord, a sinner. Help me turn around towards love. Repentance, the word in, in the Greek metanoia, is, this is literally what it means, to turn around, to be reoriented Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Again, there's no value statement on the money part of this. And I don't think this eternal salvation is, is the point that Jesus is making here. It reads to me that with Zach's promise to practice mercy and justice, like he is doing, Jesus is saying, this is salvation. This is being saved from the marring. This is how you follow the ways of my love. Salvation is reorienting ourselves reorienting everything towards the ways of love. Sharing his wealth is how Jesus knew Zacchaeus was serious about choosing this on that day. Our capacity to be generous, to be self-sacrificing, just like our capacity for any of the fruits of the Spirit or any of the other tasks of the Gospel, are to be rooted in love. God is love. Zacchaeus' giving is a matter of free, liberal overflow from love, the love that Jesus has shown him. The joy, which is a much better translation of verse 6 where it says he received him gladly, it's, it's an it's a overflowing of joy that he felt when Jesus looked up and called him down. Turning around is knowing ourselves to be so rooted and formed and belonging in his love 
absorbed and surrounded and having our very being in love, that it creates a whole paradigm shift on our understanding of what obedience to God actually is. Obedience is a funny word, isn't it? Um, Ed and I have determined that we must stop using the lives of our daughters for sermon fodder. <laughs> Which is difficult because we have in front of us three genetically similar but remarkably different ways of outworking humanness in front of us. It's incredible just to observe. Um, so I won't do that. I will just hypothetically talk about <laughs> one of three girls who's unlike the other two. Um, in that she has never really had any re regard for the rules from a very early age if you tell her not to do something don't do that darling you'll spill it she'll go <laughs> she has a very casual relationship with the truth <laughs> she it's uh, the weird thing is, in it, there does seem to be something beautiful in her curiosity and her desire to kind of understand, like, you know, how much of this is cultural norms? How much of this, like, what will happen if I do this? We went on Friday. She had the day off school on Friday, this hypothetical child. Possibly. <laughs> might have done. Imagine a child had a day off school, and it was 45 or whatever it is here, 100,000 degrees outside. And I promised her that we would... Um, get lunch and try and swim in a pool. Um, so I got my work all done in the morning and off we sat, we're going swimming in a hotel that previously when I have bought lunch, they've been absolutely fine with us swimming in their pool. But on this day, as we were greeted by the maitre d', he said, no, 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 you can't swim here if you're not a guest. Um, so I'm like, oh, bummer. Well, at least we can still have a nice lunch together. This will be fine. And she, as we arrive at the table, just starts undressing. And I said, baby, you just said we're not allowed to swim. And she went, yeah, but what's he gonna do? <laughs> And I don't know if I got that right, because I felt, I was impressed. I was like, I don't want to like shame you with my fear of, you know, him being told doing something wrong. So I went, all right, if you're comfortable doing it, darling. And then I sat there and she swam. She had a great time. He did nothing. I don't even know. I don't even know if I got that right. I'm still working it out. Um, but sometimes this is very, very, very difficult because she doesn't do what we ask her to do. Sometimes she hacks the screen time passcode and sneaks her iPad into bed and eats popcorn under her duvet covers and watches TV until we realize that she's doing it. And I don't know, sometimes there's just no way of going, yeah, but you don't want crumbs in your bed. Yeah, but you need 10 hours sleep. Yeah, but it's just, we're working it out. But what I hate is when I come to reason with her on it and I can't find any other word than obey. You just actually do have to obey us. It's annoying, because I've never liked that word. The truth is, I want her to love us and respect that we know better. But it is the only word I can find. That and taking away her device for extended periods of time, that seems to work as well. Um, but I do think there's a subtle thing here about how we have come to understand why we should not sin. As mature Christians, 
Not sinning is not about obedience. It's about how we are reoriented towards love. Not doing the things that hurt us, not doing the things that hurt others, and not doing the things that cause us to be separated from him. That's why we do it. If we find ourselves, perhaps, with a sin problem, can I suggest that what we really need to do is reframe it as a love problem? I would like to share, um, just quickly, uh, some conjecture of mine about two things, two passages in John, just before we finish. So it's the two times that Jesus says to two different people, Go and sin no more. Because it always bothered me or confused me a bit or made me just a bit worried that we might have misunderstood something. Because why would he say that? It sounds quite different to a lot of the rest of the stuff. But he does say say it. It is there. The first time is in John 5 at the pool of Bethesda when he heals this man on the Sabbath. This guy who has been physically disabled in some way that for 38 years he's unable to move his body. We We aren't given any more information than that other than we know that he can't get himself to the pool when the water is stirred. Jesus asks him if he'd like to be healed and then tells him to get up and carry his mat, which unfortunately he's not permitted to do, neither the healing nor the mat carrying, because it is Sabbath, um, which I thought was very interesting about Raoul's word earlier. And this causes a bit of a furore. And then Jesus slips away into the crowd to um, avoid any more upset. But later on, he comes back and finds the man and he says, sin no more or something worse will happen to you. The other time is one of my favorite stories in the whole world. Jesus is ambushed by the teachers of the law um, when a lot of Jews are gathered in Jerusalem for one of the feasts. And a woman is dragged before Jesus who has been caught in adultery. I'm sure you know the story. It's only told in John. It's when Jesus is his most goose-bumpingly shrewd and kind in fact this was removed it's only in John and it was removed from John for several hundred years of church history the scandal of grace is just a stretch too far for an adulterous woman isn't it but Jesus is in this predicament because either he says stone her this is what the law demands but really that would be in opposition to what most um to what he's been mostly preaching, but it would also be in opposition to the common practice of the day because it wasn't common to stone a woman for adultery in this time. It would have been viewed on as really extreme even by almost everyone in the community. But more important than that, it would have been seen as an act of insurgence, as an infringement on the exclusive rights of the Roman prefect to execute anyone. So by upholding the law of Moses, he'd be putting himself at a great risk of arrest. On the other hand, let her go, and he's publicly renouncing the Jewish law in front of all of these people to whom, of course, he is declaring that he's the son of God. So he can't do that either. The law guys must have been so excited with this trap that they've set. There is no way that Jesus can get out of this one. It's all very clever. We've got him now. It's horrible, isn't it? when a free lunch is offered to sinners if we've already paid for our lunch. 
when Jesus says, as I'm sure you know, let he who is sin cast the first stone, sorry, without sin cast the first stone, this isn't just perhaps how it sounds to us a generic, oh, come on, guys, you know, like, we've all screwed up too. Like, let's, let's be real about that. He's actually referring them back to the law, to Deuteronomy, where it says that the witness of a crime um, who, who, sorry, the witnesses of the crime who make the accusation um, must be the ones to make, to throw the first stone. And crucially, the witnesses must also be clear of all wrongdoing in the act. And so I just absolutely love picturing this. I'd like to invite you to picture it as well, because it says he bends down and writes in the dust, and we have no idea what he said. Um, it's not recorded there, and there's no record of it, but also in my experience, dust font is reasonably difficult to decipher anyway. Um, in my view, he's just orienting himself. He's slowing down. He's listening to the voice of his father. He's receiving the presence of the spirit. He's just orienting himself back to this love. And then he gets up and he looks them dead in the eye and he essentially says, well, all right, if you witnessed it, it's your job to start the stoning, but only if you are no way, in no way complicit in it because it is also a sin to allow a sin to happen and to not intervene. It's also a sin to conspire to be witnesses, to not prevent it if it was in any way possible to prevent it. I mean, however, however we imagine that they caught her in the act. If there was any element of complicity in her wrongdoing, and you're witnessing it, which we all know there was, then you are without sin. So then you would be a murderer if you cast the first stone. We miss a lot when we don't know the Deuteronomy context, don't we? At which point, they all leave beaten, angry, and conspiring some more. And as I'm sure you know, he says, I don't condemn you, um, go and sin no more. It's to these two that he says, um, go and sin no more, and to no one else. Carrying your mat on the Sabbath and adultery are both crimes, and if the law is going to be upheld to its truest extent, they're both punishable by death. In both instances, the adulterous woman and the healed man were in danger, personally, because of their interaction with Jesus and his love and his grace. This has put them directly in the line of fire. To both of them, one who has done nothing wrong that we know about and one who has, by most people's standards, catastrophically missed the mark. To both, he says something more like, I think, beware, these men are missing it. You haven't earned your pardon or your forgiveness. So they don't think you deserve it. And they are despicably willing to use you and your brokenness and your pain as a pawn in their games because what I am coming to do offends them so much. Don't let them do it to you. Give them no weapon. Go and sin no more. Here is what I do know about sin, about how we, 21st century Angelinos, can go about our life and be mature Christians and live fulfilling, meaningful, joy-filled lives centered on what Jesus has done, filled with the power of the Spirit. Here's what I know. 
Not only is it what we always say week in, week out, about coming here and being filled with his presence, with his power. It's vital. We leak it. We need it. Come and get it. We also need rhythms in our lives where we can find it again. We need ways of kneeling on the floor and writing in the sand and reorienting ourselves towards love. Let me ask you how you do it. If you don't know how to do it, if the idea of like a quiet time sounds boring, has been presented in a different way, you haven't been doing it right. This is about coming into the love that we are made for. This is about building rhythms into your day, into your week, where we remember how we were created. I am very hot. <laughs> um, let us stand now, shall we? Band, want to come up? 